Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, today's guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Katrina Wynn. She is a pediatric gastroenterologist. Say that five times fast. <laughs> I met Katrina recently at a national meeting and was enthralled with both her wisdom and her topic. I think you're going to enjoy hearing about childhood obesity. It's a problem, yes. isn't it, Andrew? It, it really is. And it's a growing problem. It's something that, you know, especially in pediatrics, we, we get to see a lot of pediatrics and family medicine. And I think it's an opportune place for an intervention because most people I think have seen statistics and they're aware um, either with themselves or loved ones, how big of a problem obesity and being overweight is into adulthood. What we're really seeing is that it's starting younger and younger and those habits carry throughout their lives. And so I'm really excited to, to talk to Dr. Wynn about this. I, so you have seen this increase even in your career, your time in medicine, Andrew? Oh, 100%. And really, you know, the national data suggests that it's kind of plateaued over the last decade. But I think regionally and socioeconomically, you see variable changes. So what have you seen in your office? How, how big a part of your practice is this? Well, you know, it's... I guess it's kind of hard to say. I don't have a percentage exactly because a lot of people, I guess the biggest challenge that I see is that, you know, when you have a little baby and you love them to death, especially if it's your first baby and you don't <laughs> have any kids to compare them to and all babies, not all, but I'd say many babies get really chunky when they're about a year old and we're so proud of them for putting on weight because we're scared to death they won't grow. <laughs> and then that's pretty normal for the first year or two but then as you approach three or four, you know, seasoned parents will recognize the kids getting really picky, a whole new type of frustration as a parent, but they all lean out too, for the most part. The trouble is, is that there's a lot of times when you, you've got to try as a physician to interject the idea that, okay, we're deviating from normal growth for a kid at this point, and it's a good time for an intervention. But a lot of times the parents are just like, hey, we're happy, they're growing, um, you know, I think culturally, I, I meet people with different cultures and kind of family expectations about what a normal growth pattern is for a kid. They say, oh, no, they're healthy. I'm, I'm glad they're, they're robust or husky or something like that. But in reality, I'm, I'm looking at the kid. I'm like, man, we're setting this kid up for failure if, if they're starting out life uh, on the obese side, because there is growing data to suggest that kids who are more obese before six years old, they carry it through life more than kids who start out leaner. And I bet it's hard to persuade parents that their kids are overweight or obese. In fact, our guest probably only sees them, at least in their office practice, when a parent realizes there's a problem. That's right. And, and almost <laughs> like so many things in life, you know, when the parents are engaged and they realize it's a problem, they're, they're actively trying to fix it. And those are not the parents that are the challenges. You know, a lot of times it's more challenging when the parents don't feel like it's a problem. Or um, if I had a nickel for every patient who said my family just has big bones. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's kind of funny to some extent, but I think there's such a correlation between generational obesity and just kind of what an expectation of a healthy adult looks like and a healthy kid looks like, it's hard to break into that because at the same time, when you're bringing it up for the child, you know, tacitly you're addressing it for the parents who frequently, I'd say most of the time, the instance of pediatric obesity, the vast majority, if not all the time, the parents are also obese. So you're really trying to treat two patients at once and bring it up in, in, you know, one of the things that's hard in medicine, I don't know if you've seen this, Tom, <laughs> when p patients come in and they have a question, hey, I'm really worried about my knee hurting. That's easy to talk about. They brought it yes, up to it you. Is. They can be objective about it. They can. And it was their idea. It's a lot harder for me to say, ooh, uh, by the way, I know your high blood pressure is not bothering you one bit. You didn't even know about it till you got here. Um, that's a big problem. Or, oh, by the way, I know you came in for knee pain or just for a checkup. 
but I wanted to talk to you today about losing weight. That's hard to bring up if people aren't ready to hear it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, and they're usually not ready to hear it right away. That's a challenge. So, Andrew, is there anything else you're hoping to hear from our uh, guest today? You know, one, one of the big things that I, I would be excited to hear is kind of the best way, not only to bring it up with parents, but some of the biggest, you know, one of the things I always like is uh, take-home points. You know, the biggest take-home points, if we could give parents a few things to say, hey, if you're worried about obesity for your kids, go ahead and make sure you're doing these two or three things. That's kind of what I'm, I'm hoping to hear from Dr. Wynn today because it could probably help your practice. Well, before we get on with the interview, let's go to our medical trivia question of the day. And we're going to unpack more of the answer to this question in the last segment of the show. But the question is simply this. In the largest study, at least the largest one I could find, ever looking at the relationship between body mass index and health, over 3.6 million English patients were studied. That's a huge uh body of research. Many fascinating relationships were discovered. I want to ask about relationship of body mass index to age at death. So the expected age at death for those with a supposed healthy BMI, that between 18.5 and 24.9, was just over 82 years. So how many years of life expectancy were lost in three groups? A, the overweight group. That's the group that's just above 25. The underweight group, the group that's just below 18.5, and in the obese group, that of a BMI of 30 or more. We'll unpack that at the end of the show, but before that, we have a break, and then on to Katrina Nguyen, our expert on childhood obesity here on Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association. Welcome back to our interview on this episode of Dr. Doctor. With us today is Dr. Kim Doan Katrina Wynn. Katrina is a board-certified pediatric gastroenterologist. That's pretty specialized. She got a medical degree at the American University of the Caribbean School of Medicine, followed by internal medicine and pediatric combined residency at University of Missouri at Columbia. She then did a fellowship in pediatric gastroenterology, hepatology, that's the study of the liver and nutrition, at the State University of New York Downstate in Brooklyn. And she's worked in Augusta, Georgia. She's worked at Mercy Health in Illinois in Southern Wisconsin. And she is currently a locum tenens and telemedicine physician based out of the Chicago area, where she's a clinical associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Rockford. Pertaining to this subject, she founded Faithful to Fitness six years ago this month, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to reverse the childhood obesity epidemic in America. Just a, a small goal. She's a member of the Catholic Medical Association and the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition. She's married to a family physician. Katrina, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you for having me here. Katrina. How did you get so passionate about childhood obesity? So, um, great question, uh, and I get asked this often. Um, so I worked in Augusta, Georgia, um, August 2009 through May of 2013, um, right out of fellowship. And during that time, I saw a lot of patients with fatty liver disease. Uh, in about 2010, um, I recall seeing um, a 12-year-old male who lived in Savannah, Georgia, about two hours away from Augusta. And he was brought by his mom to see me for obesity and high liver enzymes, uh, suspected fatty liver disease. And so we would see each other every couple months and I would keep doing counseling on diet and exercise and he would come back with his mom and nothing changed. Also gained weight, BMI increased. Um, and I kept wondering, what, what am I doing wrong? Right. At coming out of fellowship, I thought, you know, I thought my attendings, I would say, spend time with your patients, do counseling, diet, exercise, and that's going to solve the problem. So um, after several visits, I sat down with the mom. I asked her, I said, um, it seems that whatever we're doing in the office doesn't seem to be working. Uh, you know, what is it? What else can I do? What what are the things that you're struggling with um, to help? your child and your family to make healthy lifestyle changes. 
So we started talking about barriers, barriers to that prevent a family or a child or a parent to making healthy lifestyle changes. And, and did you perceive that most of the barriers were the patients, the parents, or was it combined? Uh, combined. I would say in the, those conversations, uh, I, I realized it was combined factors. And some of the barriers we talked about were um, certainly from the child's perspective, from the patient's perspective, it's motivation. Motivation just, just to get off the couch, motivation to turn off the TV, to go out there and, and just take a walk. Uh, taking time, you know, time to say exercise is important or time to prepare meals rather than going to through the, you know, the, the fast food drive through. Uh, sometimes the perception of eating healthy was more expensive. So financial factors played a role on whether we chose to just go and get something for $3 and get that one meal or spend, you know, 10 or $20 and buy something that could last several days and make several meals. Um, sometimes it's knowledge, knowledge of what's healthy eating, what's a, a, an appropriate portion whether sugary beverage or juices, sodas, and things like that are even nutritionally important or not. So with um, this particular patient and parent, what happened uh, later in the story? So um, eventually, so this, this patient was one of the patients that drove me to consider a, a taking an approach of childhood obesity intervention outside of the clinic outside of the hospital and saying, if these are barriers, it's, it's overwhelming to say, you know, bringing a child in and saying, let's weigh him every few months and let's keep talking about the same thing. That's not gonna solve the problem. We need to find a community approach to how can we address these barriers? So I started the first uh, childhood obesity intervention program in uh, Augusta, Georgia in September of 2012. And uh, my, one of my residents, um, Dr. Jordan Weitzner, who is now a pediatric gastroenterologist um, in, in Atlanta. So I encouraged him to apply for an American Academy of Pediatrics CATCH grant. And a CATCH stands for a Community Access to Child Health. And I had been awarded one of those grants when I was a resident. So I really had mentorship in the past to write a grant. So I helped him write a grant. And we were awarded a grant for almost $3,000. Um, and basically, when the American Academy of Pediatric awards a catch grant, they are acknowledging that whatever we're proposing, the program we're proposing is something that can be replicated in any community across America, not specific to a hospital or to that city. Uh, and that was another motivating factor to say, you know what, if we look into the future, no matter where I ended up working, I can take this idea, this concept, this proof of concept and apply it anywhere else. So the child was enrolled in the first program and we followed him uh, about nine months out and he started out at 280 pounds and he lost 45 pounds over nine months. Whoa, good job. Um, and uh, I was able to also improve his liver enzymes and he had asthma and he, the mom said over the next nine months after the program, never had a single ER visit Wow. for asthma. He also had some joint problems, just kind of walking um, and he saw a physical therapist to help with, with his gait. And he started out basically in September, 2012, not barely walking about a block. And by January, 2013, when we ho hosted the first 5K Fight Obesity Walk With Me event, with the motivation of other people and the participants, he walked at 5K, 3.1 miles, and finished that in a little over an hour, along with his mom and his two siblings. So, so we'll continue the story of Faithful to Fitness, but that is a great start. This problem of childhood obesity. I, I traveled in the Philippines about 30 years ago with a missionary surgeon, eight or 10 different islands. I saw exactly one overweight person in the thousands of people I saw there. It seems to me this might be a peculiarly American problem. Is it or isn't it? So um, I would... I would say I would answer that question both in the statistical, um, you know, data that's available uh, for about 191 countries, uh, which was reported in 2016. And um, in terms of obesity prevalence, U.S. is ranked the 12th, 12th uh, highest out of 191. And Vietnam, where I was born, is 191. 
<laughs> and, <laughs> and the Philippines uh, was uh, number, I believe, 168th. And in the Philippines, I worked in a Vietnamese refugee camp where I saw exactly zero overweight people. (laughs) (laughs) But, so, you know, speaking of whether it's an American problem based on statistics uh, for countries. um, So there are 11 countries uh, ahead of the U.S. and that some of those included um, like Tonga and Samoa and right before uh, America, U.S. was Kuwait. So there are there certainly are cultural factors um, when I read about some of these countries ahead of the U.S. because they certainly aren't necessarily like developed countries, but there are cultural factors that favor the uh, you know obesity you know and there's higher in these countries there's higher uh, type two diabetes as well as there's life expectancy that's uh, in the sixty you know sixty sixty five wow. year old instead of typically, you know, 80, 90 in other countries with less obesity. So um, that's Dr. what I would say, yeah. What, what age should we start talking to people about obesity, for, for kids especially? Are we talking infants, toddlers, elementary school? Um, I would say if we look at CDC um, data that goes back to 2011, um, like charts, growth charts, um, measuring BMI and kind of looking at prevalence for obesity uh, down to age, uh, starting at age two. So between ages two to five, the CDC back in 2011 to 2014 um, show that up to 9% of patients in that age um, had obesity, BMI in the range of obesity. Um, in my experience, I've had a child as young as four years old who was seeing me for fatty liver disease related to obesity. So um, I, you know, I I look at, I mean, when we look at that data, we consider things like after two, um, you know, children are more, more mobile. And certainly there's more than just milk in the diet. There's a lot more solid foods, there's more processed food that may be introduced. And, you know, being also probably beginning of daycare and such, where there's other exposures to food and juices and, and things like that. So I think it's important to start start as young as two. You know, in, I guess in what ways should we look at childhood obesity different than adult obesity? Or is it really just all the same thing on a spectrum? Um, that's a great question. And this is part of why my, um, my focus uh, in terms of starting obesity intervention program has been on childhood obesity. Um, I look at taking care of children, there's many more opportunities for prevention and prevention of obesity related health problems such as type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obstructive sleep apnea, uh, as just some examples. Um, So the similarities is um, the similar factors that contribute to both adult and childhood obesity which we talked about dietary factors. Um, we talked about you know, physical activity, screen time and such. Um, another big difference is that in, in children, the decision, a lot of the decisions can be made by the parents and the guardians in terms of choosing what foods and drinks to have in the household and whether we're gonna go walk together, exercise, um, how much screen time is allowed, for example. So, so accountability are, is easier with kids than adults. Correct. Yes, correct. So that's where I look at it. And that's why I involve the whole family in terms of programs and interventions and not just drop off the child at my program and, okay, see you in a couple hours, right? So the child and the parent have to work together to exercise. They work together, cook together in my program. They do grocery store tours together or farm tours, nutrition lessons and such. So. Is, is it safe to say that when you have a situation of, of childhood obesity, that it's really a family problem? Or I guess, do you, do you ever see uh, families where the child is obese, but the parents are not? Um, I would say uh, very rarely. Um, is that the case? Um, if, there, if I've seen that, it's uh, part of the, the major factors motivation. I have seen families where there may be, like, for example, three siblings and two are not, VMI um, are not in the obese or overweight range, and neither's the parent, and there's only one child that is uh, suffering from obesity. 
Um, so it can happen, but it's not very often. And, you know, kids that are obese usually don't enjoy it. They usually suffer in a, a bunch of ways we might think about and other ways we might not even realize. What are some of those ways? So, you know, we've uh, discussed many issues with, you know, health, uh, physical uh, problems. Um, we've talked about fatty liver. We talked about type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular issues and joint problems and breathing problems like increased asthma, exacerbation, or sleep apnea. But the other overriding factor is, um, you know, body image and mental health and bullying, um, all those things that, that often isn't discussed, you know, either it's not brought up by the family very easily, um, or it's not even asked about by the physician. And I think um, that plays a role because it's a vicious cycle when we have body image and saying, I feel, I feel hopeless because this is you know, where I am. I'm never going to be able to get better. And then other people look at the child um, and say, well, you did this to yourself. And then it's kind of a vicious cycle. So I think it's important to you know, be open to that and realizing how much of a struggle and how much they really want to change. You know, that 12-year-old that you described lost the 45 pounds and hopefully he's going on and doing even more than that what health risks disappeared or got better for him you mentioned asthma joint pain uh, fatty liver anything else that got better for him um he, like uh in terms emotionally. of emotionally um so that the mom had mentioned that uh just his motivation you know um he ended up so like his two siblings would come home from school before the program and would always tell his, mo his mom, mom, let's go take a walk. Let's go out and play this and that. But he was always the one that was sitting in front of the video games and playing. Once he completed the program, he saw how much success he achieved and how much better he felt. The mom said it was like a light bulb went off in his head and said, if other kids can do it, I can do it. And I've shown myself and my mom and other doctors that I can do this and he stopped he, he basically became one of the kids that would say let's uh, take a walk let's go out and play and he stopped playing video games so that was a big big factor and he, a lot of self-confidence after that 5k was he was able to achieve that um, so that's that's what I was told he actually got featured in a magazine in Augusta um, they, they did a story and it was it was huge the news came yeah so, you know, Katrina, one of the things that I struggle with a lot in my practice is introducing the idea that we should be worried about this at all, where, you know, at the wellness exams, it's common to go over the growth charts with the parents. And usually it's, it's an exciting thing about the child growing uh, for the first couple of years. But then at some point, it might be that the growth is too much. And uh, a lot of times I find parents are not really ready to hear that. Mm -hmm. how, how would we do best at bringing that up to families who it might not be on their radar for their child yet? Mm -hmm. I think, um, I think like what you said, you know, for, it's always important. I, I basically talk about the growth chart um, as a specialist to, with every child, regardless of what the reason why I'm seeing the child. Um, and so not just at the wild child visit, perhaps at sick visits, you know, just bringing it up. And over time, I think just saying, you know, um, you know, we just want to show you where your child is growing relative to other children. And, you know, this is considered, I don't use the term normal weight. I use healthy weight, right? Healthy weight in this range, because um, a lot of times what, I, what I've seen is normal is very subjective to most people. Um, but when we say healthy weight, we're referring to whether the body mass index or the weight is contributing to other health problems. And I think if we tie it into other health problems that could develop or are already developing, um, the family is much more receptive to making an intervention. So, Katrina, uh, part of being overweight is eating the wrong foods. How has the American diet changed in the last 50 or so years that's contributing to this problem? Well, certainly, um, you know, one of the things uh, I've seen is there's more processed food, more, um, you know, dr uh, drive-through fast food, fried food, more sugary uh, foods in the diet, and really increased uh, consumption of soda is a 
really, really major factor uh, contributing to the rise in childhood obesity as well as adults. Um, I've, I've learned from working both in the clinic and in my nonprofit work is that people have kind of forgotten or learned how to cook and cook. Uh, it's just like very overwhelming for families to say, let's prep some you know, meals or vegetables or how to cut anything up or meal prep, taking time for that. Um, and, then, and on the top of that, even when families do cook, sitting down and eating at a table without the TV or phone or iPad or anything screen time going on, um, or even when families, uh, parents do cook, um, they have not really made an effort to have the child involved in helping with, you know, prepping the meal or setting the table and such. So those are a lot of things that I've seen that have changed. Um, and it's big, part of it, a lot, big part of it is a busier lifestyle, both for the child and the parents. Some parents or families are working, both parents are working, working more than one job. Um, and then the child is not just going to school, but other extracurricular activities. Um, and, you know, coming home in a reasonable time to even eat dinner early enough before bedtime. That is a wealth of information. We are going to uh, build on this in the second half of the interview here on Dr. Doctor. Stay with us. We'll be back shortly after the break. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to Dr. Katrina Wynn today about the epidemic of childhood obesity. And you know, Katrina, we talked a lot about um, some of the things that we're seeing with the, the rise of obesity and the change to the American diet. Let's talk about physical activity. What, what kind of changes have we seen with the average activity level of a child over the last 50 years? So um, in terms of physical activity or the lack of it, um, physical activity uh, has been reduced uh, partly at, you know, at school due to less PE time and recess time. That's a big uh, issue that's brought up in my office with parents um, and more screen time. Really, you know, the American Academy Pediatric recommends for school age children to spend less than two hours a day of recreational screen time. But the more there's more screen time and more screen time that, that, that is used during the day, the less physical activity uh, is incorporated to the daytime. So the kids are spending their recreation some way, but in the past it might be outside playing ball and now it's on video games or Correct. The computer. Correct, yes. Yeah, whatever happened to free range kids? I remember going out all day long and playing with my friends and making up games. And it seems like kids just have these these proctored lives, these controlled, organized lives by their parents. Did you grow up like that? No, I didn't actually. Um, you know, sometimes I, I would go out to play and my mom would wonder when I was coming home for dinner. <laughs> she would start calling the neighbors and <laughs> they would start going out looking for you and realizing you forgot about dinner. So, uh, you know, playing dodgeball and, you know, jump rope and, um, you know, hide and seek, things like that, yes. you know, so, uh, and we forgot. I mean, we had so much fun that we forgot. We were, you know, our schedule that we were supposed to come home. So that was, that's different. That's very different. Uh, and I think, you know, with regard to, you, you re, uh, referred to the term free range kids, parents not knowing where you're at. Um, yes. But certainly I think that there's less, um, you know, a lot of families feel unsafe, you know, to let their kids yes. out. Um, and, you know, really uh, green space and playgrounds, we just don't see a lot of that anymore, where kids feel safe and parents feel safe to take them there, even with, the, with their presence, it feels unsafe. So, um, yeah, there should be more of a push for more of those things, I think, in cities, um, so that families feel that they have a place they can go together. And you know, can I give you a magic wand, Katrina? 
-hmm. With your magic wand, you wave it three times, and each time one food or drink will disappear from America. What would those three foods or drinks be? Oh, goodness. Okay. I definitely think my number one choice would be sodas. Um, number Specifically two, sugared sodas or, yeah. or sugar-free also, all sodas? Um, I would say all sodas. Okay. Number all two. Sodas. Number two is um, highly sugary foods. Um, I won't pick on one food. I, I want to, but people might get mad at me. We're talking <laughs> sweets primarily, right? Primarily, yeah. And then the third food would be fried foods. And uh, I think those those would be my top three because then we'd be down to eating, you know, farmer-delivered yes. <laughs> foods yes. straight, you know, straight from the ground. <laughs> one behavior you could change with your magic wand, what would it be? Um, I would like to um, have kids and families go out and do 60 minutes of aerobic exercise, aerobic exercise. Counting and that walking. could be walking, brisk walking. Absolutely. Uh, I've, I mean, when I say this term brisk walking, a lot of kids don't even understand what brisk walking is. <laughs> so yeah. I, in my office, I actually have to get up and I walk with them. And I said, okay, are you having trouble breathing? Because if you can't finish a sentence talking to me, that's a pretty good brisk walk. But if you can hold a conversation without being short of breath, then you're probably not walking fast enough. Got to go faster. Yeah. <laughs> so, Katrina, for people who are listening at home and they're thinking, well, gee whiz, I, I don't think my, my child, my loved one has a problem yet, but I've been worried about it. What, what are some of the things that you would advise them to go home immediately and, and change? You had mentioned a few foods we should dodge um, and that daily activity what about the screen time? Do you think that's something that if we scaled that back or I know there were times growing up that my mom would say, Hey, go outside. Don't care what you do, uh, but you're outside time out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, absolutely. I think screen time um, should be reduced. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, for recreational purposes, less than two hours a day, um, there are many kids that come see me and they say schools requiring them to use their computer or iPad to do homework. I mean, that's kind of different, but certainly trying to find a balance between the, if you're spending this much time, the screen should find just as much time to be outside and being active. Um, so that's, that's huge. But um, as far as things that, you know, as a family, as parents and grandparents, maybe things that they can do for their children to, if they're worried about the risk for obesity, again, they're in control of what is purchased, right? So purchasing, not purchasing sodas, that's a huge savings and really an improvement in, in prevention of obesity and really reducing fast food consumption, cooking more and learning how to cook. And, um, and again, walking with them, uh, getting a set goal in a number of days a week and when, when that's going to happen. Um, I, yeah. What is it that happens that makes a parent finally decide to bring a patient to see you? You're kind of different than Andrew. Andrew's got the problem of convincing somebody they have the problem. You mm -hmm. see those people who are convinced. What happened? And what kind of insight might this give to people like Andrew on the front lines of this? Um, most of the time, uh, physicians like pediatricians or endocrinologists or dietitian uh, will refer a patient to me for um, obesity or fatty liver disease. So high liver enzymes or BMI that continues to rise above the normal, meaning, you know, for overweight uh, BMI above the 85th percentile and obesity a BMI above the 95th percentile. Uh, and it's a trend, an overall trend that these uh, referring physicians and dietitians are concerned. So about. does that mean when the parent comes to you, they're often not convinced that their child has a problem or are they usually convinced? Most of the time they are convinced and they're, they're worried uh, and they're worried whether they did something that caused this um, and they're hoping and that it's not too late to make a change. Uh, and they're ready, really. They're, most of the time, they are ready to say, what can I do? What can we do to, to start making things better? I mean, how often does the blood test make the change for them? Or is it just the visual of their child? 
or is it some emotional problem their child's facing? What is it that usually triggers to a parent, there's a problem, we need to address it? For my uh, specialty, it's the high liver enzymes. When the pediatricians or endocrinologists have already done that uh, testing, and, um, you know, it may be found just on a sick visit, may be found as part of some pediatricians who do well visits and labs along with it, or they're concerned about, gosh, this BMI is rising. Maybe we should check to see if there's any evidence of fatty liver disease. So is that a pearl of wisdom for family docs like Andrew to do this test to give them something objective so you don't think you're maybe shaming them? Correct. I think that's a good uh, starting point. You can also include, um, I I always say, try to do um, labs fasting. And so um, looking at uh, uh, insulin, fasting insulin, uh, which is a, you know, um, elevated fasting uh, insulin as a risk factor for for obesity and diet type 2 diabetes, um, other things like hemoglobin A1C, uh, cholesterol, um, this is very practical because what it does is so often we don't want to do something because emotionally it bothers us. It lights up the amygdala in our brain, mm-hmm. you know, the fight or flight, we just put up a wall. But you're putting numbers to it and numbers takes out of the amygdala, puts it into the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain where we rationally think. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a brilliant idea. I'm curious, Andrew, what do you think? Is Does this have potential? Oh, 100%. You know, it's always... Nobody loves getting lab work when you're a kid, but I think there's nothing more powerful. I remember a patient that I saw recently who was nine years old and and obese. And so we ended up getting lab work and found a diabetic level A1C, which Mm -hmm. is a test for diabetes. And I think that kind of surprised everybody. And definitely that's one way to get people's attention. If you can show them objective data, then it's clearly a time to make a change. Mm-hmm. And as I went through earlier, it's not about, I don't focus so much on the number, the BMI on the growth chart as, gosh, this is why we need to intervene. But is there another health issue that is being caused by this finding on the growth chart? I you think have that's an unhealthy weight. Correct. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a rational objective. All right, very good. What is the first place you start to try to give your patients and their parents little victories to build on? So I, um, I feel like oftentimes uh, people with, that struggle with obesity, whether it's a child or the adult, um, they feel hopeless, right? They feel like, gosh, like how many things do I need to change? Like, I don't know that I can afford to just, you know, revamp the whole diet for the family. Do I have time for this? So I, I tell them um, something that I, I read and present very often is the, the, the phrase, um, if you change nothing, nothing will change, right? Uh, and that goes, you know, with a lot of things, not just in, in obesity. Right. So I say, I say, you know, we divide up the, barrier, uh, the things that contribute to obesity. We talked about physical activity, diet, um, you know, those things, for example, in screen time or, you know, um, consumption of, of sugary beverages. So pick something, start with one thing and set a goal of how long am I going to give myself to achieve getting off sodas or how long will it take me to start developing three times a week with walking 60 minutes with my family. So start with one goal and then set a time frame. And then I also have a, a pretty, pretty quick follow-up for accountability. So usually after I see them the first visit, I bring them back in a month. Not because I expect that the BMI is going to change or the liver and enzymes are going to change, but I'm bringing them back to talk about goals. Have you set that goal? How, how, how far along are you with that goal? That sounds very practical. Katrina, how has the uh, pandemic changed your practice? You know, this is 2020, and there's a lot of things. I think 2020 can be an excuse for people as well. <laughs> um, what What have you seen different with your practice regarding the pandemic and all the closures and whatnot with that? Um, I certainly have seen an increase in obesity. Um, I've seen an increase um, in fatty liver disease and even in patients that I have been seeing for years with fatty liver disease whose um, liver enzymes um, have improved or normalized or their BMI have 
reduced significantly, even into the uh, no longer overweight range um, during the pandemic. And after about three, four months of not going outside and not being active, all those things changed and got worse. And so I know that these families were capable, were motivated, or got all the tools, and they were able to do it for years. And then they came back to me because you know, a pediatrician, someone rechecked labs and noticed it went back to where it was a few years ago. So um, certainly the pandemic, you know, more virtual learning, screen time has increased for many hours and less physical activity time, you know, just feeling safe to go outside or um, the other thing is just being at home and being bored and eating more, maybe eating an extra meal a day or snacking more, uh, just access, right? Your home, you say, oh, I can just go to the cupboard and grab a few snacks. And while I'm sitting in front of the screen and doing virtual learning or other stuff on the screen other than learning. <laughs> is there evidence that kids who go to school eat a more healthy diet than those who don't? Um, I would say that what uh, school allows is that there's more routine. So they actually have certain times that they're eating and not necessarily snacking in between. You know, there are um, children who, um, you know, families from impoverished areas who may have access to food and drinks, but less nutritionally dense foods. And that's what the school does provide um, versus being at home is whatever is available. So. That's why I remember back in the spring, some schools were still providing meals to pick up because they were more balanced, healthy meals, mm -hmm. which Absolutely. is a good thing. Yeah. Katrina, what, what is the relationship between appetite and obesity? You know, I, I see a lot of folks where uh, the child's hungry, whether it be at uh, extra snack time or they want to get a third helping at dinner. Um, is, is there a way to change that? Is that something the parents need to put the brakes on or should we just out-exercise their appetite? <laughs> um, okay, so I can speak from kind of my experience working with children in my program. When I do ask um, children with obesity, you know, why, why do they eat, you know, a second or a third helping or why do they snack? And most of the time it's not because they're hungry. Right. Most of the time it's because they're bored, they're bored. Um, and they try to fill that boredom with some kind of way to have pleasure, right? Joy. And th then sometimes food or drink becomes something that fills that void. Um, that's what I hear. Um, the other factor to consider as far as the types of food that can affect either stimulate appetite or, or um, really encourage satiety or, you know, feeling of, of fullness. So foods that are high, like a diet high in sugar and high in fat, um, tend to really stimulate uh, an area in the, your brain called the reward center, reward activity. And, um, you know, there's, there's a term that was coined by a psychologist named um, Dr. Michael Lowe. I think he was from Drexel University in 2007 called um, hedonic, um, like hedonic, like hunger. So normal hunger would be metabolic hunger where you're truly hunger. There's hormones that regulate that through the hypothalamus. So there's leptin, there's ghrelin, and those are all things that either stimulate appetite or stimulate, you know, uh, satiety. But when we have a diet high in fat and high in sugar, instead of stimulating the pathways within the hypothalamus, it actually stimulates the reward center. And so those hedonic are, refers to just pleasure, hunger, hunger, correct. For pleasure, not for the sake of need for the body. Hunger. Yeah. It's the dopamine hunger instead of the, the true hunger. Correct. Yeah. So there are like, I mean, I don't use medications to treat obesity, but certainly there are physicians out there who um, try to distinguish between metabolic hunger um, versus hedonic hunger and maybe certain medications that can help treat the differences. Your website, Faithful to Fitness. It's the word faithful spelled out, the number two, and fitness.org, faithfultofitness.org. What are you accomplishing and hoping to accomplish through this? So Faithful to Fitness uh, is my nonprofit um, that was started on November 6th of 2014. Um, what I have uh, 
been accomplishing since uh, the program, the first childhood obese intervention program was started under Faith Little Fit, and it was April of 2015 in Rockford, Illinois. And we offer 12-week programs three times a year between April and uh, December. And we do, in partnership with many people in the community here, we do one-hour um, exercises on Saturday as a group uh, through the gym, and they donate the space as well as an instructor. We do um, cooking classes one, three times a year, so one during each program. We take kids on a grocery store tour through Meyer, and we have a budget of 10 to $20 per family that they can shop only healthy foods uh, during that, and we pay for all that. We also take kids to a local farm, an organic farm, so, so they can learn how food is supplied by farmers. And they learn how, how to pick up vegetables and make a salad and dressing and all that and sit down and eat together. Uh, a dietitian that volunteers for me does nutrition lessons at the end of some of the exercise classes. So those are the things that we do within our nonprofit. We've also held a 5K event every August since uh, 2016. And we get about 150 to 250 people that come to that. Um, so my hope is that as I've done programs here in Illinois, I'd like to be able to share the same format, same program to other cities. Uh, if there's somebody that's interested, motivated, and would like to lead an effort in their own city, I'd be happy to help get that started. If God is tapping on your shoulder, please respond to Katrina. If you email us, we'll get you in touch with her, or you can just go to her website, faithful2fitness.org. Can people benefit from the website if they don't live in your part of the country? Um, in terms of just reaching out to me and getting some information on how to make changes in their, their, um, for a healthy lifestyle in that sense? Or? I'm just wondering, is it only for people around you in Rockford, Illinois, or can other people find things that will help them change their lives? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, on the website, yes, there's lots of information on, um, again, I, like I address different causes of obesity and things that can be done to help improve and kind Wonderful. of head Last start. Last 30 yeah. seconds, top three things you want people to remember about childhood obesity. I would um, say that childhood obesity is an intervention prevention, and it's a family effort. And uh, intervention on diet, exercise um, are things that we need to work together and motivate each other to address barriers. So work together with the family, change diet, change exercise. Katrina Wynn, thank you for being with us here on Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We'll be back with the answer to the trivia question after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question, which I think a lot of people will like. I think so, because one of the things that I struggle with is the concept of BMI in health, body mass index. It's basically, you know, how many pounds per inch are you? I mean, that isn't what it comes down to, but that's the basic thing it measures. It's also where the doctor just tries to make you feel bad about how much you weigh. Oh, yeah. I, I went to an orthopedic doctor for uh, something recently. And at the end of my visit, I got this automatic printout. It says, your BMI is 25.8. You are overweight. Here is a list of things that you should do. <laughs> and I showed it to my wife who said, just please throw that away. So I'm going to give you some data here that's going to support what, what, what my wife told me to do. So in the largest study that I've ever seen published about the relationship between body mass index and life expectancy and cause of death, over 3.5 million English patients were studied. The average age at death in this study was 82. So the question is, how much did that age change if you were just in the overweight group? 25 to 30 instead of 18 and a half to 25. Stunningly, it changed 1.0 years. Which less. is equivocal almost. You know, I'm not sure that's outside the confidence interval. That's well, more or what, less what's even more stunning is there are a number of graphs that we can't show you. But the graph shows not that 18 and a half to 25 is where people live the longest. It's between about 22 to 27. So I think this is a great argument 
this study for changing what is considered a healthy weight because what you will notice in the next two parts of the question, how much did life expectancy decrease in the underweight group, which is 18 and a, less than 18 and a half, which is considered healthy at 18 and a half, or 30, which is obese, but that's five points more than what's considered healthy. Well, guess what? Each of them changed about four and a quarter years. I mean, there identical. A bigger change when you got underweight versus when you got really obese, as opposed to the slightly overweight range, which is the yellow range on all the printouts. So these, these studies show, you know, I'm looking at some of these right now, and it looks like uh, on most of them, the sweet spot literally is 24 to 27, not 22 to 27, but 24 to 27 is best for mortality for all people. For those who never smoked, it looks like the sweet spot is 23 to 26, pretty the flattest part of the curve where people live the longest. And that resonates with one of our earlier shows where we identified the happiest BMI of 27. That one stuck with me. So, Give it to us, Andrew. What is the <laughs> happiest BMI? 27. 27 is the place where if you want to be happy and if you want to be healthy also, I'd shoot for probably 26. But if you are a graph lover and a visual learner like I am, we'll link this article below. Oh, that's a great idea. Yes, Ken. And then you too can revel in the joy of these graphs, which will show you that the 18 and a half to 25, it might not be as wise as we thought. And we thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of our show with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. Send us questions or tell us how something you heard changed your life. And also be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor.